Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Yaniv Voller. Yaniv is Senior Lecturer in Middle East Politics in the School of Politics and International Relations at the University of Kent. He holds a PhD from the LSE and was previously a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow at the University of Edinburgh. His first book, The Kurdish Liberation Movement in Iraq, From Insurgency to Statehood, was published in the Routledge Studies in Middle East Politics series. He's published in a range of different journals, including International Affairs, Democratization, Terrorism and Political Violence, and the International Journal of Middle East Studies, among many others. And excitingly, his second book, Second Generation Liberation Wars, Rethinking Colonialism in Iraqi Kurdistan and Southern Sudan, is forthcoming with Cambridge University Press. So it's an absolute pleasure to welcome Yaniv onto this podcast. Yaniv, thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank you, Simon, for, for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Um, I've been reading your work for, for a long time now, and I'm, I'm delighted that we've, we've found time to, to have a chat. So, as always, Yaniv, I, I must start by asking you, um, what's, what's got you interested in, in politics, and, and what pushed you in the direction of, of academia? Um, so my so first of all, thank you very much for having me. It's really um, I'm really excited. I've, I've, I've had plenty of chances to uh, to listen to the podcast, so it's really nice. It's really nice to be to be on it. Um, so I, I I think I started. I, I got interested in politics from a very young age. I think my 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 interest in politics started with the first Gulf War in Iraq, right in 1991, mm-hmm. when I watched the um, you know when I watched the news and, and the images coming from from Kuwait and Iraq and, and this was the first I think this was the first time that I became conscious about politics and my interest in um, especially in the politics of the Middle East actually started in in um, in high school uh, because um, I was I was brought up in Israel where everything of course is political and um, as is I, I actually chose to um, uh, my my high school offered uh, the you know, the equivalent of A levels in Arabic and Islamic history, and this is where my 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 real academic interest in the subject started. Okay. And when I when I started when and um, when I started when when I. Applied for my, you know, when when I went to university, I knew that this is what I would like to do—to study the politics and history of the Middle East—and I've been doing it. I've been doing it. I've been doing it ever since. Amazing. So I must ask you, what was it about about the the, the politics and the sort of the, the religion of the region that that really spoke to you then? Um, I. I I think I have to admit that it was the um, well, and, and, and this is one thing that I always tell my students about. I teach a module on terrorism and political violence, and it was actually you know it was these images of violence that I've never been exposed to before. Conflict, right? conflict is something really intriguing, and I think it was the so I, I think you know. Watching for the first time what war looks like, and uh, you know what the what the impact of conflict is, really made me interested in the subject. I couldn't, you know, obviously at, at a younger age, I couldn't point 
my finger hit, but uh, you know, I couldn't. I, I didn't think in terms of conflict resolution, but I think it was the desire to understand what exactly is going on. Going on, right? Yeah. You know, why why do these things shape our lives in in, in that way? Um, you know, why do they happen? And again, I mean, this, this understanding of what I'm interested in, if what I'm really interested in, came in at a much later stage. Uh, but this is but this is something that's that's been guiding me for 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 a very long time. And even again, even when I when I chose to learn, uh, for example, and again I'm I'm going back really really early here. But um, even when I chose to learn Arabic and the history of the Middle East in high school, this was one you know this this is um, I think the desire to understand. Why, you know, why why these things happen? Why 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 this violence takes place? And I I, I I think it had a lot to do with the fact that I I developed a very strong political conscience already at an early at an early age, and it's always been there. It's always been there. This you know this very strong political conscience. Right. Okay. So I want to pick up on that that political conscience, if I may. Was there? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that, and was there something that triggered it? But I'm also curious, given the this this focus on on sort of understanding conflict, does that stem from from the imagery that you saw around the the first Gulf War, or or was there something else? Um, I think that this was. Pro- I mean, it, you know, um, having been raised in Israel, you are exposed to conflict and violence. In many different ways, right? I mean, um, of course, you experience dif- you experience this violence differently depending yeah. on who you are and where you're from, of course. Sure. Uh, but but conflict and violence is part of your daily life, and, and I, you know, you, I think most people get a bit desensitized about it because this is part of your daily experience. Uh, but you know, at some point, when you take a moment to actually reflect on it, you realize that this is not actually. You know, this is not the reality in many other parts of the world. So, um, and the Gulf War, and again, I was very, I was very young, and I, I was very young, but but it left such a strong impression on me um, because it was a chance to see violence taking place somewhere else. Of course, it affected our life, right? I mean, it, as as uh, it, it, it did, you know. Um, the fact, for example, that we had to carry gas masks yeah. for as, as kids, it, it had a very strong impact, and and you realize, uh, you know, it, it takes time to actually understand it. But this was, um, but this was the first realization, and then you know, as as the years go by, and you start getting exposed to more instances, more you know, different episodes of violence and conflict, not just in your country, but in other countries, in other parts of the world. It just, I think, it makes you realize. How um, you know? Uh, I, th- I think it really triggers one's desire to understand why these things happen and to make comparisons. And again, I, I don't want to speak in terms of conflict resolution, and I'm not sure how much I really contribute in practice to conflict resolution. But you do want to understand the things that may, you know, um, that that cause things to be, you know, the the way they are. Um, so I can I can say. I mean, certainly the Arab-Israeli conflict, right? The conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. It's the, I, I, I'm sure that it's 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 been an important part of it. Um, but there were some other episodes as well that really, that even that drove me even further to that. Um, if I can, 
Uh, let, let me give you one one example. When Please, I was yeah. um, doing my military service, mm-hmm. shown photos from uh, we were shown this as part of my training. Uh, we were shown videos from the Anfal campaign. So this yeah. this was the first time that I actually got exposed to the Kurdish question. Well, you right? preempted we my question f- there. So sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I imagine. Yeah, I imagine this is where we're heading. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and that was the first time that I really got exposed to the Kurdish story, right? I knew that you know, obviously, because of my interest in Iraq and what happened, I knew about. Um, I knew that there's, you know, I, I, I knew that there's something that there are Kurdish people. I didn't know a lot about them, or I couldn't even make a, I couldn't make you know, great difference between them and, and the Arabs before. Uh, because I wasn't educated enough from there. Yeah, sure. But then, but then you see the story, and, and we were shown the videos from the Anfal for for completely for military purposes to understand the dangers of the use of weapons of mass destruction in conflict. Mm-hmm. But you know, but but for me, it triggered a completely different thing. I became so this was I, I became really interested in. I, I, I was shocked. Obviously, when you see these footages, and when you when you are a soldier, they don't spare you, right? They don't censor the yeah. images that you see. And this, this, the, um, I think the misery and the suffering of the Kurdish people that was that, that was the thing that really, really struck me. And then when I when I started my undergraduate studies at Tel Aviv University, um, one of our one of our modules was on. Um, on, on the Kurds in Iraq as a case study of minorities in the Middle East. And it was taught by Professor Ofra Benjo, who's been studying the Kurdish question for, for decades now. I think anyone who works on the Kurdish question, uh, on, 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 on Kurdish history, has probably encountered, uh, you know, this there, Ofra, Ofra Benjo at one point. And, and it was there that really made, and, and, and it, was, it was a fascinating module. And I've, I've become even more fascinated by by Iraq and the way you know Iraqi history and Kurdish history, and I, I think this is this is what really led me to. So you know, there was um, you know these incidents these, these led me to become really interested in the Kurdish question and and, um, and yeah and, and, and Iraq. That's, I mean, that's quite a way of being um, being drawn into an intellectual uh, line of inquiry. I, I can't imagine what it must have been like to see to see that that footage and those images in in detail. I always say to people that I mean, there are things that that you can't unsee, that things that stay with you, and I imagine that that must be be um, be yeah. one of them. And um, Yaniv, I, I also just before we delve deeper into into that line of inquiry with regard to to your work on on the Kurds and Iraq and and also sovereignty, you mentioned this political conscience. Can you elaborate just a bit on that and how you think that shaped and indeed continues to shape the work that you're doing, please? Um, I, I I suppose, and again, um, I think you know it's 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 it's, it's something. That um, it's you know it's been a constant thing in my life. I also come from a very politically conscious family. Political, you know, talking about politics over over um, um, over dinner was 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 quite common 
um, you know, in, in my family, in my extended family. Again, and you might say, I, I think you can say it about many Israelis. We are very, poli- many, many Israelis are very politically conscious, depending on, you know, um, uh, and I, I do, and again, I'm not, I do hope that my work has some impact, right? When I do, when I write about something, my, my desire is that if someone reads it, they can actually get lessons. It's not just it's, it's not just about expanding the reader's knowledge, but also to give them tools about um, you know solving some of the problems and the, and the issues that that we face. And I do I do believe again having having studied violence for for so long has probably driven me to become more. I, I can say you know certainly certainly more 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 dovish in my positions toward toward conflict mm, and I'm much sure. more conscious about the price that that conflict um, you know the, 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 the price that people ordinary people pay because of conflict so I, 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 I don't necessarily position myself in one political camp or another but I do believe that um, I think it's also our role I think as academics to try and 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 think about how how research can be used. Yeah, sure. So conflicts, and I think you know many. Uh, I think many academics try to avoid it. You know, m- m- many academics try. To, you know, they think about their work in very theoretical. You know, as as um, you know, I, I don't want to be too critical of our sector and, and field, um, but I'm. I, you know, even when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, when it comes to the conflict in in Iraq, I, I certainly believe in. Um, I said I, I I do hope that my work, at one you know, at one, in, in one way, could actually contribute to solving this this, this problem. So, um, mm. um, I, I think in, in in this way, my my politics, right, the fact that I'm, you know, you can probably you know. My my left leaning perspectives um, definitely feed into my research. Sure, and I think that it's a commendable position to hold with regard to producing knowledge, not just for the production of of new knowledge, but to try and uh, and and have an impact on the world. I think it's a it's a really commendable position and one that that personally speaking, I think we should all um, we should all try and aspire to. Um, moving away from the, the the broader sort of philosophical questions about the production of knowledge, uh, can we go back to your uh, your PhD then, Yaniv? You were um, you were becoming increasingly intrigued in in questions of of um, Iraqi Kurds, and yeah. so you go to the LSE for a PhD. What was what was that on, and who were you working with? So my supervisor was um, Katrina Delacour. Right. Um, and uh, you know, um, uh, Katerina has worked a lot on the Middle East. Right? She's worked on so many different. She's worked on so many different um, aspects of Middle East politics. Um, and when I, when I, when I, you know, when I initially contacted her to, uh, to you know, in, in preparation for the application, I wasn't entirely sure. But what I, how I want to, um, you know, how I want to. Approach the subject. I knew that I'm interested 
in the Kurdish question in Iraq. I knew that I'm interested in the fact that the Kurds actually gave the autonomy. And there was something really interested, sorry, there was something really interesting about the way that the Kurds secured their autonomy after 1991 and what they made of this autonomy. But I, I didn't know exactly um, I didn't know exactly how to approach it. So, um, and when I started, you know, I mean, the, you know, you know, these things, you know, these things unfold. I I started with um, so I, I, I started I started with an interest in the Kurdish question. But then, in my and for for the first day of my PhD, I was just trying to learn more about this question of. Um, you know, um, of democracy in federal regions and you know, questions of democratization because, because you know, after 2003, there was a lot of optimism about yeah. what happens in the Kurdistan region in Iraq and there were quite a few reforms taking place and I was really fascinated by it but I couldn't point my finger exactly on how to approach the subject. And then, you know, completely randomly in my, um, you know, I had this this, this uh, you know, epiphany of how to approach it, right? I, I had a discussion with someone and he suggested to me, um, you know, you may want to read a bit more about the subject of de facto unrecognized states because there's something there mm-hmm. that could have better understand the Kurdish question in Iran. And I did. And I, I started reading about this, you know, this whole framework of de facto states which at the time focused almost exclusively on some of the um, de facto states in the Caucasus, you know, Abkhazia and Nagorno-Karabakh, yeah. or on, you know, the, Turkey, or, 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 uh, the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, uh, or in Somaliland in another, in, in another case. But there was very little attention paid to the Kurdistan regional government. And this is this has really triggered me to become much more interested not just in the Kurdish question, but actually in this question of sovereignty, and um, and, and especially the question of contested sovereignty. And I think and that. This is, sorry, Yaniv, go on, please. Yeah. No, and uh, sorry. That, so there was. Um, so you know, I, I ended up. I, I just I ended up getting getting to this. Get, uh, I ended up becoming interested in the contested sovereignty completely randomly, but I found it such a fascinating subject and I've kept working on, on this issue since, since then. Well, I find it really fascinating. It's, it speaks to a lot of my own interests and I think that was probably where I first came across your work, Yaniv, on, on the, the questions of de facto states and, and contested sovereignty and I've, I've been reading your work ever since. But for, for people unaware of, of quite what that means to have de facto sovereignty or, or contested sovereignty because this is obviously a rich area of, of, of scholarship can you just elaborate maybe briefly just for, for anyone who's not familiar with with some of these concepts please yeah absolutely and the de facto state right the, the the concept of de facto state is a really intriguing one because it's quite broad right and like we, we know what the state is right there are certain traits that we can um relate to a state as you know um so, uh, but when it comes to de facto state, it's much more an analytical tool rather than anything else. Yeah. So de facto state is a term that relates to entities, political, well, uh, geographic units um, that have seceded from a country. Um, so these are mainly separatist 
these are many separatist units, right, that uh, were born out of uh, civil wars, uh, separatist wars, and these political units have declared independence or have, have declared their desire to gain independence from their parent state. And these units do have very broad sovereignty, right? They, they, they do display many of the um, many of the traits of independent states. They have, of course, they have their own, uh, they, have, they have populations, they have government, they, they run their own um, foreign policies, but they're not recognized as such by the international community. So the international community refuses to acknowledge the existence of these um, of these these actors as, mm. as independent actors, right? They don't. Yeah. They, they cannot become members of international organizations. They um, they don't get international aid, uh, at least at least formally. Yeah, they, they don't. They, they can't get international aid independently from the parent state. So these states are in this political limbo. So I mentioned some of the classic examples, right? Somaliland, for example, which seceded from Somalia in 1991, is often used as a case study. Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, which is only recognized by Turkey. Um, some people relate to Taiwan as a de facto state. And I show in my research that the Kurdistan regional government um, in Iraq is very much a de facto state. It really fits into this model. Yeah, fascinating. Really, really interesting stuff. And we could do a whole set of discussions around the conceptual debates of de facto and contested statehood and sovereignty, and it would be fascinating. But alas, we have a, a limited amount of time and we have so much more to cover. Um, so tell us then a little bit about about the first book, Yaniv, which I assume comes out of the, the PhD and perhaps even the, the Leverhulme Fellowship. But for people who've not read it, and again, would uh, strongly urge you to, can you uh, can you tell us a little bit about it, please? What's the, the main takeaway? Absolutely. And you're right. I mean, I mean, debating about what the de facto state and what sovereignty is, of course, there, you know, I've spent so much time debating on it and trying to defend my position. Um, so the book tries to explore how this very strange position, right, this very strange position in, in political limbo, this, this position of contested sovereignty, has affected the evolution, right, the development of the, the Kurdish de facto state in northern Iraq. And what they try to show um, is that um, what, I, what, what I try to show in the book is that, and, and, and you're right, it is, it is the outcome of my PhD research, um, is that this contested, this, this position has a very strong impact on the way these actors, right, these de facto states behave and operate domestically and internationally. What mm. I try, um, what I, I think what I really try to show is that much of the behavior, um, because one of the most important things that really guide the facto states is achieving recognition and international legitimacy, not necessarily, not just for their claim to independence, right? Not just for their claim to the right to self-determination, but even their autonomous existence, even their de facto existence is constantly challenged by the international community. 
the international community, right, the, the, the states, and, and, and this, this applies to most other states, right? They don't like separatist movements. Even states, they don't, they don't really face separatist or secessionist threats. They're not comfortable with separatist movements, and we know we know this, right? I mean, since um, um, since I, I suppose since you know um, since decolonization, only two separatist movements, only two countries managed to secure their independence without 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 the pan state completely collapsing, right? Yeah. So um, Bangladesh and and South. South Sudan, but you have so many other separatist movements. You have so many other secessionist movements, and they face tremendous pressures. So they constantly try, and um, they constantly struggle. Those separatist movements that were successful in securing autonomy and some levels of domestic and international sovereignty, they are constantly trying to secure legitimacy for that. Not just from the not just from the international community, but also from their own people, from their own subjects. And these pressures, what I try to show is that these pressures really shape the way that these actors behave. So if you take, for example, the Kurdistan regional government, um, I try to show, for example, that many of the reforms and, and the Kurdistan regional government did experience some significant, I think, reforms, at least in the first decades of its existence. Um, and these reforms were inspired partly by the Kurdish leadership's desire to secure legitimacy. Now, many people say, well, you know, you know, um, these separatist elites, right? They, for example, the Kurdish leadership, they try, they do things cosmetically. They want people to think that they've gone through democratization. They want people to think that they, you know, they've they've applied. Uh, economic, you know, um, economic reforms because because they want to get, you know, because they want to get recognized. But I try to show that because of this position, because of their vulnerability, uh, and because of the very delicate position they are look, that these entities are, are in, it actually helps pressure groups both inside and outside. To drive them to um, to drive these entities to carry out reforms. So, that, so for example, and this is what I try to show in my book and in some of my articles, some of the transitions that the KRG, that, you know, the Kurdistan Regional Government experienced in its first years of, of existence, were because of these pressures. Um, and it also applies to their foreign policy. Yeah. For example, the KRGs, um, as we know. The Peshmerga, right, the Kurdish forces were very much involved in in um, regional counter-terrorism collaborations. And part of it, as I try to show in my book and in some of my other works, you know, this great desire of the KRG to fight terrorism, it had a lot to do, of course, with the threats that the Kurds were facing, first from Al-Qaeda, you know, affiliated organizations such as Ansar al-Islam, but it also had a lot to do with the KRG's, you know, the, the counter-terrorism became an important part of the KRG's public diplomacy, right? Mm-hmm. We're fighting terrorism. We are part, we are a very important element in regional 
in, in you know regional security. We, we contribute to regional stability. We actually deserve to be recognized. We deserve to maintain our autonomy. And when time comes, we also deserve to gain our independence. So it's not, and, and it's not a surprise that the KRG actually, you know, that the KRG had its referendum in 2017 after ISIS was defeated and after the KRG, you know, after the Peshmerga really became the boots on the ground, along, of course, the YPG and, and, and the, uh, uh, the PKK forces and, and, and the Iraqi militias, right? But there, there's a strong connection there. Of course, yeah. It's, it's really interesting hearing you, you reflect on that. It strikes me there's a, a whole bunch of, of structural factors that are conditioning the, the actions of, of, of the KRG Kurdish movements more broadly. But I wonder, where does, where does this leave agency in all of this? And I'm thinking particularly of, of elite agency. Um, the, the sort of the, the leadership of the, the various um, Kurdish movements within within Iraq specifically, because I think there's there's a strong argument to be made that the the um, the referendum was not actually in the interests of of the collective, but perhaps more uh, stemming from the maybe the the aspirations or the the goals of the the leadership, the elites. So. I wonder if you could just say a little bit about about that, please, Yaniv. Absolutely, absolutely. I think I think that the referendum was a really. I mean, this was this was um, this was a dramatic moment. I mean, it, it didn't. You know, it didn't. The independence didn't really materialize, but it was a dramatic moment in in you know in in in, in Iraq, and you could see that you could see that not only Baghdad, but also but also um, Turkey and Iran. Um, made a great effort to prevent any um, to prevent any change in the status of of the Kurdistan region. Um, now, when it comes to the timing of the referendum, yes, I, 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 I've definitely encountered the the, um, the argument that this primarily served the Kurdish leadership, right? The, um, the um, KDP and, and, and President uh, Masoud Barzani. I'm, uh, but, but the thing is, the desire for independence is genuine. Um, yeah, of even, course. Even if there were some problems about the process of the referendum, most of the people actually did. Most of the people, certainly, certainly in um, certainly in the KDP-controlled areas, right in Erbil and Dohuk. Uh, Many people actually did go out to vote, and and they voted for and they voted for independence. And I suppose that you know, my 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 question would be: Is there any? I mean, is is is, is there any ideal time for for a separatist movement, for a movement that desires yeah. to gain independence? Is there any ideal time to actually? Uh, you know, to actually declare independence or to try and make a move toward independence, and certainly not when it when it comes to the Kurds in Iraq. There's never a good time because the objection to Kurdish independence on and and and, and again, it's it's not about Baghdad. After yeah. I, I think that in many ways Baghdad Baghdad, you know, the, the Iraqi government is not really a side to this debate. 
the, 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 the Iraqi government is such, um, it, it doesn't really have leverage over the Kurds. It's more about, it's actually more about Turkey and Iran. And Turkey and Iran, for the time being at least, are not even willing to consider the idea of Kurdish independence for many different reasons, of course. Yeah. So, even if we can question the timing of holding the referendum, um, I, I, I do think that it, it reflected the genuine desire by many Kurds in Iraq to actually secure independence. Sure. So, where do we go from here then? Are we focusing on the on the, the question of, of independence? Where does the, the Kurdish independence movement go from here? With the the, the parabolic pressures of, of, I guess, socioeconomic forces, counter-terrorism, relations with Baghdad, Turkey, mm. Iran, developments in Syria. Where, where does this leave the independence movement more broadly? I, I, for the time being, at least, it seems like it's going nowhere. Uh, yeah. You know, because because the, the pressure still exists, right? You have very, um, you have powerful regional actors. Um, again, Turkey and Iran, two regional, two regional powers, with very strong interests in preventing Kurdish independence. Um, the KRG, the, 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 you know, the, the, the Kurdish government was actually quite. Um, it was quite strategic in its relations with Ankara and Tehran, and they developed very good relations. Anyone who visits, for example, um, the Kurdistan region will see the depth of the connections between uh, between the KRG and its two neighbors, right? I mean, the, the, the KRG, the, the, the Kurds import almost everything from Iran and, and Turkey. Turkish construction uh, companies have built so many of the very impressive construction projects in 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 Erbil and Slimani, right? Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, they also have complete control of what of, of the fate of um, of the Kurdish region, um, and the same problems that the KRG faced in 2017, they exist. They still exist. Um, also, also of course, the domestic internal problems and the tensions between. The, the tensions within the Kurdish elite, right, between the PUK and the KDP and, and the divisions that, that still exist. Um, yeah. Now, if, if there's any part, I think that I think that many Kurds in Iraq, um, I, I, I don't want to speak on their behalf, but my impression was that many Kurds were willing to give up on, 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 on pan-Kurdish aspirations in order to establish at least a state in part in, in one part of Kurdistan, right? Yeah. Um, but I don't see I, I don't see that happening. Not not now. Um, uh, I, I think I think you know um, I, I don't see it happening in, in the near future. Not in Iraq. Not in Rojava, mm -hmm. where again where Turkey really curtailed any attempt to create a strong, viable, uh, self-sustained political entity, right? Rojava was a really fascinating, I mean, you know, Rojava is a really fascinating political and social experiment, but all of their achievements have been put under tremendous pressures by Turkish intervention. And as long as there's no clear international support for Kurdish independence, I'm afraid that I, we, we won't see it happening in, in, in the near future. 
Well, I fear that's a rather gloomy note to end on, but we've taken up a, a huge amount of time, covered a huge amount of material, and we've not even got onto your your latest book, Yaniv. So I think what we're going to have to do when that is out is we're going to have to get you back on, if that's okay, and, and talk more about, about that and the comparisons with with South Sudan. But perhaps you can tease us all just very quickly with a, um, with, with a, a, a possible release date. Is there one in mind? I have to admit, it's uh, it's a good question. <laughs> the, book, well, the book is it's still in production, so the manuscript is ready. Um, it's you know it's now it goes through the final stages of proofreading and uh, uh, all of the things related. But you know, I mean, you, you know, these things work, so uh, it's very hard to predict. I really hope that it will come out by the by the end of the year, maybe the beginning of next year. And I'll definitely be happy to uh, talk about it because it's it's another really it's another really really uh, in a sense it's a prequel to studying you know the, the emergence of the Kurdish de facto state, hmm. but also in southern Sudan today. So so fascinating. Uh, it's a project I really enjoyed working on. Glad to hear, and uh, I guess we can hope that it comes out in the in the not too distant future. And we'll certainly be uh, be welcoming you back with open arms, Yanif. So thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, as always, I've learned a great deal. So thank you so much. Thank you, Simon. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you, Yanif. A huge thank you to Yaniv Voller there. You can find Yaniv on Twitter at Yaniv Voller, V-O-L-L-E-R. Please also follow Project Sepad at Project Sepad. And uh, like, share, subscribe in all the usual ways to everything that we're doing. We're contractually obliged to do this, you know. It helps with the algorithms. So, until next time, thanks for listening.